I have an unshakable belief in heaven. How many of you guys have an unshakable belief in heaven? You have an unshakable belief in heaven. But I realized what I was lacking was an anticipation for it. I realized I know it's there. I believe it's there. I 100% do. But why aren't I anticipating it as much as I should be? I mean, if you think about what the Bible commands of you, and the Bible commands of me, Colossians 3.1, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on this earth. This word set your mind, it means set your affections, anticipate it. What he's saying is if you're raised with Christ, anticipate what's above, anticipate what's coming, not what's on this earth. And so as I'm thinking about this, I'm like, Lord, the Bible commands me to do it. The Bible commands me to look forward to it. The Bible commands me to anticipate it. Why, why don't I as much? Why is it that I can go throughout my whole day? I don't have a discipline of prayer that necessarily recognizes what's coming, like it's right around the corner. You talk to somebody who's got a terminal illness, heaven becomes much realer to them. It's much realer because they realize, they're shaken and they realize, wow, my, my, my affections towards this world aren't to be what they are. And all of a sudden, heaven's like, oh God, I can't wait to get there. Why can't I live like that? Why can't I be in a place where I'm constantly waiting and anticipating, <coughs> excuse me, what it's going to be like to be with God? Well, I know there's a lot of reasons. And I'm not going to pretend to, to tell everybody what all the reasons are. I think one of the reasons people don't anticipate heaven is because they're in love with earth. They're in love with everything here. They're kind of like, I would say, kind of like spiritual polygamists, right? If you think about a polygamist, a polygamist is married to one or, or, or to two or more wives, right? Let's just take two. He's married to a few different women. Now, technically, he'll only say, I'm married to one because that's illegal, right? So legally, he's only married to one, but he spends time with multiple people, multiple women, if you will, right? So throughout the week, he's enjoying himself and doing whatever it is married men do with other women other than is legal. But he'll tell you legally, the law sees I'm married to one. And I think sometimes people that, that call themselves Christians are like that. Legally, they'll say, I'm married to Christ. He's my one, legally. I mean, it's just me and him. But then they'll spend their time loving other things in the world. And it's like they're trying to be married to both the world and to the Lord. And, and, and so, you know, when they come to church, it's, yes, it's God, and I'm just infatuated with God. But then they go out, and their whole life, the other six days a week, is all about dating the world and all that the world sounds like and all that the world does. And, and, and I think part of the reason people don't anticipate heaven is because they're trying to be married to two loves. And the Bible says that's impossible. You're going to love one if you have two masters, and you're going to despise the other. And you see that. Listen, you guys, a person cannot have all of God in all of the world. Let me say that again. A person cannot have all of God in all of the world. That type of Christianity isn't real. It doesn't exist. It's made up by people that don't want to go all in with God. It's not that they don't believe God that exists. Demons believe that. It's just they don't want to give him everything. They don't want to give him all of who they are. 
And so they make up this Christianity that comes to church on Sunday, but you know how you live the other six days a week. That's not real. It's not real. Now, none of us are perfect, but to just, to just pretend like I'm going I'm to love God on Sunday and then love everything that's against God the rest of the week, I think that's part of the reason, at least one of the reasons, why people don't have this affection towards heaven. They don't have this anticipation for eternity and they find themselves stuck. And listen, the longer a person stays in that place of being torn between two loves, you, you're, you, you say you love God and then you love all of the world, the longer you stay there, the more dangerous it becomes. Folks, when Jesus addresses the end time church, and I believe we're in the end days, when he you know, addresses the end time church. He calls the church of Laodicea lukewarm. Now, now you probably heard people say, you know, pastor say or teacher say, you know, um, that's the church. He says, I'd rather you be hot. I'd rather you be cold. But because you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. And God would rather you be hot on fire for him or cold or not even saved. And it sure makes for a great evangelistic message. But here's the thing. There's nowhere in scripture that you're going to find. You're not going to be able to provide a hermeneutic that says God would rather a person not be saved. That God would rather a person be cold. That's nowhere. You could make the argument that, yeah, God is not willing that any man should perish, that God would want people to be on fire as if, you know, I'd rather you be hot, so that means you're saved. But you're not going to find it anywhere that God would say, I wish you weren't saved. What you find there is an interesting picture. We've talked about this in the past when we went through those letters, but Jesus is standing in Laodicea. Six miles in one direction is Herapolis. There's hot springs. Ten miles in the other direction, there's um, Colossae, which are cold springs. And what Jesus is saying as he's standing there is, you have built your life too far away from that which is refreshing and that which is therapeutic. And your aqueducts that you built to bring those things to yourself, now by the time the source gets to you, it's lukewarm and it's nasty. So he's using something physical to point out a spiritual truth. And the spiritual truth is, listen, hot is good, cold is good, but you are so far away from God and you're okay with building your city there that all you get is what's lukewarm. And then he goes on to use other things about the city. The city had a great banking system. And he said, you know, you, you say you're, you're rich. I tell you you're poor. You know, they, had, they were known for ISAB. You, you know, got this ISAB. I say, buy from me ISAB, anoint your eyes with, you know, with, with some health. And in other words, he's using everything physical to point to their spiritual condition that they're bankrupt, you guys. This was a church. This was a location. He refers to the believer's love for the world is what he's talking about. He acknowledges that they are self-deceived. He says, you say, read it. You say, I've prospered, I need nothing, not realizing you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You guys, when Jesus calls a believer, a professing believer, when Jesus calls somebody naked, he's not saying you don't got clothes on. He's referring to something. Isaiah 61.10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, 
for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with robes of righteousness. Multiple times in the New Testament, you will see Jesus talking about white robes, robes of righteousness. He tells a parable of a man who came into a wedding and he went up to the man and he said, where are the wedding clothes? You don't have the right wedding clothes. And because the man didn't have the right wedding clothes, he was kicked out of the reception. He wasn't allowed to go. You see in Revelation, when he brings us and gives us this view of heaven, that he sees every kindred, nation, and tongue. I want you to see this. Every race under heaven, every one of them, and they were all clothed with white robes. Jesus is saying this is the righteousness of Christ. And so when he tells this church, you're pitiable, poor, blind, and naked, he's telling people in the church, you don't have salvation. You don't know God. That is a horrifying reality. You guys, it seems that Laodicea had deceived themselves because they thought they had all the needs. Everything that they would need was provided. And Jesus comes and assesses their condition. And he says, you are 100% bankrupt. They were close enough to God to deceive themselves into thinking they were from God. And that is a dangerous place to be. The reality is, though, they were too far away from him to actually have any change in their life. So certainly, I think, you guys, one of the reasons for a lack of daily longing for heaven, I think we would all agree, is because people don't know the Lord. And and you can hang around with people that know God, and you can be around the smell of worship and be around all of that, and you can actually convince yourself that, yeah, oh yeah, this is great. But the real proof is 5, 10, 15, 20 years later, are you still doing the same thing? Because God never leaves a person the way he found them. Let me say that again. God never leaves a person the way he found them. He always changes them. And so if there's no change in my life, if if I've just settled in Laodicea, then I'm not going to have a longing for heaven. That's just, that's it. I'm going to be too in love with the world. However, you guys, for most of us, and I think we would all kind of, most of us would land in this camp, the lack of anticipation that we feel at times for heaven has more to do not with our salvation, but it has to do with something that Jesus warned against in Luke 21. If you have your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 21. Jesus is talking to the end days. He's talking about what it's going to be like. And he lays out a warning for us in Luke 21 around verse 34. And and I think this needs to be paid attention to because you and I are susceptible to this. In Luke chapter 21, verse 34, these are the words of Jesus. He says, watch out. That means pay attention. Be very careful. Don't let your hearts be dulled by carousing and drunkenness and by the worries of this life. Don't let that day catch you unaware like a trap. The day he's talking about is the day of his coming. That's what he's, that's what he's preaching here. And so he says, listen, watch out, guard yourself, pay attention because your hearts can actually become dulled. The word dulled there is, is exactly what it sounds like. It's not sharp. 
right? This morning I was, I was pulling out some meat and I was cutting it to put it in the crock pot. And as I, I pulled it out, you know, I have this one knife that I, it's my go-to knife, right? It's the sharp knife in our house. How many of you guys have a bunch of knives and only like one or two that are sharp? But you got a bunch of dull ones, right? Like you don't pull the dull knife and you look for that, right? That handle. And it's just, there's a sensation that comes over you. Ah, oh, the sharp knife. Because you, you know it gets business done, right? You don't grab the dullest knife in the drawer to try and cut through an inch and a half slab of meat. You're going to be there all day. You guys, the point is, is that there are certain knives in my drawer that because they're sharp, they're usable for certain things. Now, that doesn't mean I don't use the dull knives, right? I mean, I'll I'll use the dull knives to cut butter or to slice cranberry sauce, something that's like ultra soft and, and doesn't, you know, doesn't do anything, but it, the, the point is, <clears throat> is that when you're sharp, you're able to be used in a way that you wouldn't be if you're dull. Let me say that a different way. When you're dull, you cannot be used in the same way, won't be used in the same way that, it, that you would be if you're sharp. Does that make sense? You live that, you know that. Now, it doesn't mean that God isn't going to use a person who might be struggling, but what it does mean is that if I allow the world to be a weight and I allow the world to dull my senses and and I become that dull blade, I'm not going to be used in the same way that I would if I was drawing near to God, pursuing God, and I was sharp about the things of God. That's just natural. When a heart becomes dull, you guys, when a heart becomes dull, It needs a revival. It needs a revival to become sharp. Now, in my almost 30 years of walking with the Lord, you guys, I have yet to meet a believer whose heart remained sharp and they never had the world dull their senses. I've never met anyone. And and I met some pretty spiritual people, right? To some extent, you guys, we all need revival at some point in our walk with God. We walk in a dark world. It affects you. It affects the way you think. It affects the things you do. We all need, you guys, to be pulled back or to be relieved from the weight of living in a world that constantly presses on our heart. And it's constantly wanting devotion and time from us. Now, perhaps that weight is what Jesus says here in Luke 21. Perhaps it is carousing and drunkenness. Certainly it's the cares of this world. Maybe, maybe the weight is rage or it's bitterness. Maybe it's just a dryness. You, you know you believe in God, kind of like you believe in heaven, but there's just a dryness there. You've, at one time, you used, to, you used to love God. You used to think you loved God a little more than you do now, but now you're dry and you're just wondering. You're going through the motions. And you're like, man, why don't I have this fire about me that I used to have? I don't care who you are. You are going to go through that. You can't, you can't think that you're going to live your entire life believing in God and think you're never going to come to doubt. You're never going to go through rough patches. You're never going to go through patches where you find yourself leaning in different directions, different thought processes. I mean, come on. Everybody goes through it. But when the heart becomes dull, you guys, that's when a revival is needed in us, in the person, regardless, folks, We've all went through those seasons and we needed to be revived in order to be sharp again. 
Second Kings chapter 22, if you're there, a king by the name of Josiah has just been installed to begin his reign. He's eight years old. That's a horrifying thought to have an eight-year-old. Now, the reason that an eight-year-old is king over Israel, it isn't because they didn't have anybody that was more mature and couldn't do it, right? The reason is because they had what was called a royal line of secession, and it remained in the family, that is, the throne did, and Josiah's father, Amnon, had just been murdered. And so because he was murdered, now Josiah has come up as the eight-year-old, and he's the king. It turns out that those that were working for Amnon didn't like him very much. He was a wicked king. And so one day when he was in his house, they, all the servants got together, they conspired, and they just they whacked the guy, and they killed him. And so, um, you know, that just goes to show you that be nice to the people that are in your house because you never know what they're thinking, man. <laughs> Second Kings 21.20 says that this man did evil in the sight of the Lord. And that evidently was enough to impact the people around him. Well, when the people of the land found out that their king had been killed, they went and they killed the servants of the house. I mean, this is just a doggy dog time that Josiah is taking the throne. And that left the eight-year-old in charge. So to understand the magnitude of what we're going to read here, and this is just profound to me, um, we have to understand uh, what happens under Josiah's reign. To understand that, you guys, we have to understand what he's inheriting. Because he's eight years old. He doesn't even know what he's inheriting, right? 86 years before Josiah began his reign, his great-granddaddy, Hezekiah, began the reign to be king over Judah. He was an amazing king. He was a man that loved the people. And the Bible says about him in 2 Kings 18, 5, he trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him. He kept his commandments and the Lord was with him wherever he went. And he rebelled against the king of Syria and he wouldn't serve him. Okay, he saw some great things, you guys. He was a king that caused a nation to prosper. A king that caused a nation to prosper. Everyone prospered under his obedience to God. So let me just say this without getting too deep into it. Christian church, please do never say politics don't matter. We don't take sides, but we take God's side. And you are going to see in a story and the one that we're going to look at in a second that one person's disobedience drug a nation into, into turmoil for 75 years. And one man's obedience turned everything around. These weren't priests. These were politicians. These were kings. We need to demand moral excellence out of the people we choose to lead us because it impacts everybody. And I don't care what party you belong to, but moral excellence is important to God. And it's important to leading a nation towards wreckage or towards blessing. And so what happens is Hezekiah reigns well. Now, he had a dull season in his life. Just so you know, we're told in 2 Chronicles 32, 25 that he's, he was weighed down with pride. When he got older, he got prideful and the judgment of God was looming over him and, and God was like, I'm gonna take care of this and, and, and you're gonna die. 
And, and he started crying, man. Isaiah came to him and said, hey, man, you got to get your house in order. God's going to take your life. And so Isaiah walks out, and you can read it. He starts, he hears, he hears Hezekiah crying, oh, God, you know. And, and so Isaiah stops in the courtyard. He runs back, and he goes, okay, listen. Um, because you cried out to the Lord, God's going to extend your life for 15 years. And, and Hezekiah's like, yeah, the brother should have left well enough alone. Because I'll tell you what happened in that 15 years. He had a son. And his son named was Manasseh. Manasseh was the worst thing that ever happened to the nation of Israel. He was the worst thing. Said, it's said of him that he did more evil than any king before him or after him. We're told in 2 Kings 21, 3, if you're taking notes, that he rebuilt the altars that Hezekiah, his father, destroyed. Altars to Baal, the Ashtaroth, which brought, which brought sexual promiscuity to the house of Israel. We're told he was a politician that made perversion commonplace amongst the people, all the people. He instilled it into their laws. When Josiah took over this nation, this nation had been in a 57-year downward spiral. A 57-year downward spiral, you guys. This was a part of everyday life. Evil was accepted as the norm. People didn't know any different. If, if you were under 57 years of, years of age, this is all you knew. All you knew was the, was the prostitutes and the whores in the temple. Oh yeah, well that, that's just, that, that's, that's, you know, it's not a big deal to you. All you knew were, were the idol worships of Baal. All you knew was what was happening in the valley of, 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 of Hinnom. All you knew was the sacrifice, sacrifice of the children. There was no conviction because you grew up under it. That was it. All you knew was compromise. All you knew was sex outside of marriage. That's it. It was normal. 57 years, people lived under a cloud of darkness. 57 years, people walked in the wrong direction. In the wrong direction, and I'll tell you something that I've learned, folks. In, I've almost been a believer for 30, 30 years. If you walk in the wrong direction long enough, it'll ultimately become the right direction. It'll become the only direction because you won't know any different. You'll convince yourself that walking in the wrong direction is the best direction and be completely naive to the fact that all of it is against what God wants in a person's life until someone comes and shows you something else. 2 Kings 22, 14 words that ignited a spark that changed a man and changed a nation. I have found the book of the law that was in the house of the Lord. For 75 years, they walked in the wrong direction. They weren't following God. Two generations emerged only knowing evil, only knowing the wrong thing to do, thinking it was the right thing to do. And then they found the book of the law. But they just didn't just find the book of the law. We're told that they read it. They didn't just hold it. Oh, we got the scrolls. Praise God for the scrolls. They read it. But they didn't just find it. And they didn't just read it. They obeyed it. 